Lord God, we thank you for this time that we can gather together. We thank you for your word that we can read and learn from, in which we behold you, and through which we learn to honor and obey and trust you as our good God. As we've just sung, Lord, we pray that you would help us in our weakness and in our pride to learn to surrender all to you. Make us a people devoted to you as your beloved children. Help us to desire your honor and glory above all things, above all our own selfish desires, that we would live lives that are honoring to you. And so we pray you would bless our time together, reveal to us truth from your word, and help us to live it out in love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see you all. We see some new faces here today and also some faces we haven't seen in a long time. So welcome back. Um, it's a, a privilege to be here together and just a joy to be in the Lord's Word. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here, in case you don't know me. And uh, we're in our series on First and Second Samuel. Uh, and today, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me, we're in 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. And here at Zoe, we believe in the authority of the Word of God, and we have the Word as the center of all our ministries here, and uh, we just want to study it and know it and apply it uh, in obedience in our lives. And so we've been going through 1 Samuel. Our last chapter last week was the famous passage on David and Goliath. And now, of course, we're in the next chapter, which is what happens next, which you might not know as well. It's like how we all know John 3.16, but you might not know John 3.17. That's just how it works. We don't want, though, the story of David and Goliath to trump everything else that's going to come. And so every passage in here is important. So 1 Samuel 18 today, what is the aftermath of perhaps David's most famous story of all? What happens after David and Goliath? What are the immediate effects of his incredible underdog victory? How does everyone respond to this newly minted hero? And what we'll find in this chapter is that David is forging new friends and new enemies. In fact, if you know your Bible, you already know that Saul and David are sworn enemies for life. But up until now, everything's been fine. Uh, they, they, they haven't had any issues with each other. David has been playing the, the liar in Saul's presence to help him out with the harmful spirit. Everything's been good. So what makes them enemies? Well, it all changes here. This will set the course for the rest of Saul's life. The main idea for today is to consider how we react to what God is doing. What do we choose to do with God's revealed will or with how we see him working? Do we embrace and comply with the work of his hand or do we push back against it? Will you get on board with God or by your actions choose to defy him? And so today we're just going to jump right in. And we're going to look at three responses to David in the aftermath of Goliath. Three reactions to what God is doing. We'll see this in three D words, devotion, displeasure, and distress. The first reaction we encounter in the text is devotion. Devotion. We see in this the reaction of, or sorry, we see this in the reaction of Jonathan, who responds with sacrificial love and surrender. Let's look at the first five verses. As soon as he, that is David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. 
Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. This chapter picks up right off the battlefield after David has killed Goliath. Saul had summoned David into his tent at the end of chapter 17 to inquire about his family, who he is, and now we learn that Jonathan was present too, perhaps in the very room where it happened. And immediately the text says, Jonathan loves David. Now, if you haven't been with us, or perhaps you've forgotten, uh, we need to recap here. We haven't actually seen Jonathan since May, back when we were studying chapters 13 and 14. And so, Jonathan is the eldest son of King Saul. He's the rightful heir to the throne. And he was also a war hero. The first time we meet him in chapter 13, he's defeating a garrison of Philistines. And then after that, one day Jonathan and his armor bearer single-handedly go up to engage the Philistines because he says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And the two of them engage this troop and take down 20 men. It's an amazing first strike that leads to a much larger Israelite victory. Does Jonathan remind you of anyone? Of course he does. A courageous man of war who seeks the Lord and trusts him for victory, whom God uses to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Of course he reminds you of David. They sound virtually the same. They share the same character, the same heart, the same relentless trust in God. And it's no wonder that he sees in David a kindred spirit. If you look at the text in verses 1 and 3, the author uses a peculiar phrase twice. It says, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, what does it mean to love someone as your own soul? You know, this phrase is actually used in the law. You don't have to turn there. But Deuteronomy 13.6, there is a specific law that says, if anyone tries to lead you astray to worship foreign gods, you should put them to death. Now, the thing about that specific law is that it actually illustrates that um, there are certain types of people who, no matter how close they are, you should still not spare them if they lead you astray to serve foreign gods. And it says, if it's your brother, your son or daughter, your wife, or your friend who is as your own soul. There is a closeness assumed here that they are like family. The closest people to you are your sibling, your child, your spouse, and then this specific type of close friend. So when verse 1 says Jonathan's soul is knit to the soul of David, there's a closeness implied here, almost on the level of kinship or marriage, or maybe even beyond that, right? As a family, you share the bond of blood. That's what makes you kin. In marriage, you become one flesh. That's how God unites you. And then, with such a friend, you share the bond of a soul. Now, here's where people get caught up with the deep nature of this relationship. It's so foreign to us. People confuse this with romance because it sounds so intimate, and it really is. To make it even weirder, in 2 Samuel 1.26, David calls the love of Jonathan, quote, extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. This is so strange and foreign to us that some people read this text in the 2 Samuel 1 and conclude it must be homosexuality. Now, to be clear, that's not what's happening here. That is clearly a sin in Scripture. And our problem is actually that we don't have the cultural vocabulary today to express this type of bond, this type of relationship. 
We don't have a category in our 21st century Western minds to conceive of how this relationship be class- should be classified. We try to place it into one of our societally accepted boxes. And since David and Jonathan are clearly more than just bros, then they must have been lovers. No, all right? That is not the case. We're serious about scripture here. We've got to look at the text to see what we don't understand. Yes, they are more than friends, but this mysterious relationship they have doesn't exist within our cultural framework, no. But it is this, that they have a love of covenant friendship. Covenant friendship. Verse 3, Jonathan makes a covenant with David because of his love. What is a covenant? A covenant is a chosen relationship with binding promises. The chosen relationship between two parties with binding promises. For example, in marriage, which you might consider a covenant, two people volitionally choose each other, they enter into an exclusive relationship, and they make solemn vows to be kept before God, man, and in some cases the government. Now if these promises are broken, the relationship is strained. The marriage falls apart. The covenant disintegrates. Jonathan and David also make a choice, a relationship, and a promise. They choose to enter into this friendship of sworn brotherhood for life. They promise loyalty and allegiance to each other with unbreakable devotion. Each would rather die than betray the other. There would also be no envy, no jealousy, no rivalry. Your victories will be my victories. We will always be on the same side no matter the cost. Now, this degree of devotion is almost unheard of, even in marriages today, let alone friendships. But we'll come to see that this is what they have between them. In the next few chapters, we will see this covenant honored. We will see this friendship played out with Jonathan saving David's life on a couple of occasions, warning him to flee, and even almost taking a spear for David. And later on, we'll see David honoring Jonathan's son after he passes away. But for now, we get to see one act. We get to see the first act of Jonathan's covenant love. In verse 4, Jonathan takes off his robe, his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt, and he gives them all to David. There's a few layers to this. First, we got to think of what's actually happening. Okay, You remember that David came from the pastures to bring from Jesse's house cheese to his brothers, to the Israelite army. So he's not dressed to fight. He's in his shepherding clothes. And now Jonathan gives David his royal armor to replace his clothes. His sword replaces the shepherd's staff that he holds. His bow replaces the sling. His belt replaces the shepherd's pouch. This act is one of the highest honors in the land. For any royalty to bestow an article of clothing or a weapon upon someone else is how a military hero would be honored. And here Jonathan gives David everything. Now, even more significantly, to remind you, as we learned in chapter 13, there were no blacksmiths at that time in Israel. The whole army fought with sharpened farming implements and hand tools, and only two people, that chapter says, had swords and spears, Saul and his son, Jonathan. And so this rare sword, Jonathan's rightful and precious weapon, one that only he deserves and that no one could take from him, a weapon that he still could use, and he still needs, he gives it to David. That's pretty insane. It shows the level of his sacrifice. It shows the depth of his devotion. And even deeper than that, there's something symbolic happening here. 
You see, the transfer of clothing in Scripture has to do with the transfer of position for prophets, priests, and kings. Here's some Bible trivia for you all. In 1 Kings 19, the prophet Elijah, do you remember how does he pass on the mantle of prophetic authority to Elisha? He passes on the mantle, literally. The mantle is a cloak. That's the passage, 1 Kings 19, where we get the English phrase, passing the mantle. Elijah gives his cloak to Elisha to pass on the prophetic authority and responsibility. That's prophets. What about priests? In Numbers 20, 26, the priesthood is passed on from Aaron to Eleazar, his son. How? By stripping off the priestly garments from Aaron and putting them on his son, Eleazar. We have prophets, priests, and now kings. Prince Jonathan gives David all of his royal gear, which symbolically confers the right of succession to David. That is, Jonathan is passing on his kingly rights. This is tremendous sacrifice. He's giving up an entire future kingdom, a rule and a reign, his authority, his honor, his power, all of which were his by birthright. Jonathan's great devotion is based on his trust that this is God's man to get behind. This is God's king. So Jonathan is willing to surrender everything for his sake and not stand in the way. In his heart, his royal position and his royal possessions, both are not his to use, but to give. In fact, the name Jonathan means Jehovah has given. Jonathan, who is rightfully greater, is willing to make himself the lesser. And in this, he exemplifies true love, because love does not envy. Love does not boast. It does not insist on its own way. But true love lays down oneself for another. Jonathan gives up everything to get behind what God is doing. Devotion. That is the lesson for us today. If we truly love what God loves, we must devote ourselves fully to his cause, being willing to surrender everything to follow him and participate in his will and in his work. And we must strive to recognize where God is working in order to throw ourselves behind it wholeheartedly, sacrificing ourselves, our rights, our possessions, our efforts, everything for what is truly good. What God has given us, he's given us to surrender back to him. Have you ever seen God doing something and not wanted to be a part of it? If you're honest, if I'm honest, yeah, maybe you're that way with missions, right? They're overseas doing the work over there. Good for them. I could never do that. Or maybe you see others bringing friends to church and you never once think that you should go greet them or talk to them and befriend them and share Christ with them. But what if you're not supposed to be admiring God's good work from a distance? Maybe these are God-given opportunities that you should be getting yourself behind. Brothers and sisters, if we say we are devoted to God, we need to devote ourselves to what he's doing. We need to put ourselves in the path of God's work and get on board with his plans. How do you know God doesn't want you to be the one to befriend that person, to share the gospel and to meet needs? What if you're the person that God wants to use to encourage this other floundering brother or sister who's struggling? You know, I think we can think even larger than this. We can think about what God is doing in places of tragedy, suffering, and loss and ask how we can get ourselves behind that work. In fact, this past Monday, as we were just hearing more of the news about Afghanistan, I was talking to Steph, my wife, and I was kind of feeling the same way that I usually feel 
when I hear about big international news about genocide or religious violence or civil unrest. I always feel troubled in my soul, but I also feel somewhat helpless, effectively incapacitated. Because sure, we can give money and find a good cause to donate to to help. And of course, we can pray. We do not doubt the power of God and the necessity of prayer and that he works through prayer and answers prayer. But at the same time, what, what can we ever actually tangibly do from here in Texas? On Monday, I wondered that aloud to Steph. If there's ever a way to get practically uh, involved to get our boots on the ground. Now, I'm not saying we should all become activists or make everything political. That's not me at all, if you know me. But the very next morning, on Tuesday morning, and this is all God, a news article popped up on my feed. And it said that hundreds of Afghanistan refugees will end up here in Texas. And as it turns out, and I was on a conference call yesterday with a few others of you on the, about this, that these resettlement agencies in Dallas are already overwhelmed with the need for volunteers to pick up Afghan refugees from airports, to take them on errands, buy them meals, even provide them temporary lodging for the next few weeks. And I'm thinking God answered my prayer not by directly providing for them, but by revealing opportunities for me to participate in his work. What once seemed half a world away on Monday, on Tuesday morning it was in my backyard. And look, not to ruffle any feathers, but if I'm honest, and I need to be with you as a pastor, it doesn't matter what your, what your position is on refugees. Okay, If we're concerned about who they are, where they're from, why they're here, what jobs they'll take, Jesus already answered the question, and who is my neighbor? And I think we do well to be Christians first and Americans second. As God's people, we have an opportunity to show compassion to our neighbors in a time of their need of help and of hope. God wants us to be the light of Christ to the poor, the sojourner, the orphan, and the widow. So we need to really think, what can we do to be in the way of God's work? Recently, I've been encouraged by some of you stepping up to really be a part of good, God's good work here at Zoe. Some of you approached me I think two weeks ago with thoughtful intentions of forming new types of community groups to meet specific needs in the church, and that's happened. Some of you have contacted me with suggestions how to grow our worship ministry, and that's appreciated. And I know many of you have been faithfully laboring in evangelism and bringing new people to Zoe every month. Some of you have served faithfully now for over five years since we launched in tiring and thankless positions. And all of you have encouraged me greatly because you are actively participating in God's work. You're spending yourselves getting behind what God is doing. Because true devotion requires sacrifice whether it's opening our homes or opening our wallets, giving our time or giving our resources, the question is, are you ready and willing to sacrifice for God? To give it all up as we sang, all to Jesus, I surrender. And look, it can start way simpler than you think. Maybe you can sign up to watch kids in community group. Or maybe you just need to greet someone new this afternoon at the end of service who you haven't met before. Or maybe you just need to pray for someone during the week and check in with them with a text. Brothers and sisters, we need to commit ourselves to love what God loves and to love whom he loves and to devote ourselves fully to what he is doing. We must be so enraptured by his plans that we're willing to give up our own, to sacrifice our comforts, our rights, and our hopes that all the glory might be his. So Jonathan responds, with devotion.
Second, we see his father's response. King Saul, this is the second point, displeasure. Displeasure. Saul sees this turn of events and he despises what's happening. It rubs him the wrong way. And not only is he unwilling to accept what God is doing, but his displeasure and his anger are revealed in active, intentional defiance against God and his man, David. Let's see how it plays out, starting in verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The women of Israel come out celebrating. This is a military victory. It's what they did, the homecoming celebration. There's live music, singing, and dancing. This is pretty customary uh, in the culture at that time. We saw as early as Exodus when Israel uh, was delivered from Egypt and miraculously God uh, parted the Red Sea for them and then drowned uh, the Egyptian army, Pharaoh and the army, in the waters. Miriam and the women of Israel come out with music, dancing, and singing. That's just what they did. And they sang songs to celebrate God and the victory. And here in verse 7, we see the song. It says they sang to one another, which could mean that it's responsive, a call and response. So one group goes, Saul has struck down his thousands, and the other replies, and David his ten thousands, right? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And much to Saul's chagrin, this is a very catchy tune. In fact, this song will become very widely known. We'll get to chapter 21 in a few weeks. And when David flees to Gath, a foreign land, the people will say to their king, hey, isn't this David? And isn't there a song and dance number about him? How did it go again? And they actually know it verbatim, right? They know the whole TikTok dance. I mean, imagine there is an unfavorable song written about you, and it instantly goes viral. It hits number one on the international charts. It goes down in history, cementing public perception of who you are. Saul, understandably, gets really angry. The song displeases him, because the whole structure of the song is to belittle Saul at his expense to glorify David, to magnify him. To Saul, this was nothing less than an ancient Near East diss track, and he hated it. Now, it's not just the numbers thing, right? The problem is, historically, military victories and deaths were supposed to be attributed to the king. These battles are won under the king's banner. Every death is one of Saul's kills. But instead, the song exalts David, a lowly soldier. And not even that, but a shepherd boy, a rogue shepherd boy, and somehow he gets the credit for tens of thousands of deaths. That's why in Saul's mind, all that is left is the kingdom. He's not being overdramatic here. By giving David the credit, the people are attributing to him a king's success. They're virtually crowning him as king, and a greater one than Saul at that. There's no doubt that Saul recalls now Samuel's prophecy from chapter 15, verse 28, that God will tear the kingdom away from Saul and give it to a neighbor better than himself. Saul's probably thinking for the first time, is this him? 
He virtually has the kingdom. They're saying he's better than me. It's all practically his already. And so in verse 9, Saul eyes David from that day on. He'll keep close tabs on this suspicious character, this guy who's usurping the throne in the songs and in the hearts of the people. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. It's no wonder that Saul doesn't allow David to return home, but presses him into his service. Now, Saul's response is the polar opposite of Jonathan's. Because where Jonathan's covenant friendship proclaims, your victories are my victories, Saul says, your victories are my losses. Where Jonathan stands fully behind David, Saul positions himself fully against him. And where Jonathan's actions say, here, take my future kingship, Saul's actions say, you will never be king. Because you can't be king if you're dead. You see, Saul's displeasure turns into a consuming vengeance and murder. Let's pick it up from verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. In verse 10, the harmful spirit from chapter 16 returns, and we see a repeat of what is apparently an ongoing scenario day by day, in which the harmful spirit would torment Saul and David would play the lyre, which would refresh and calm Saul down. Now, the passage, this passage here actually tells us for the first time a little bit more about Saul's behavior during his episodes. The word translated raved is the word that's usually translated prophesied. It's usually translated prophesied. In fact, of Saul himself, both before and after this, one in chapter 10 and then once in chapter 19, Saul does prophesy. So why does he prophesy there before and after, and in the same word here, he raves? Well, in those other two cases, the Spirit of God comes upon him. When the Spirit of God comes upon Saul, he prophesies. But in this one, the Holy Spirit has left him, and a harmful spirit has come, and so he raves. The difference between prophecy and crazy raving is the presence of God. There's another example of this. Without God, it looks more like 1 Kings 18, where the false prophets of the idol Baal prophesied or raved on. There, the Bible says clearly, they were crying out, limping around, cutting themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out. God's words, not mine. This was an insane frenzy of ecstatic experiences. Crazy, bizarre expressions of self-destructive behavior. They were stark raving mad. And this is what Saul is doing in his agitated state of rage. He's probably bent on doing harm, perhaps to himself, but definitely to someone else. Because we see he takes his spear and hurls it at David. Twice. And the Bible explicitly tells us Saul's intent We know his mind, that despite his insanity, he had a clear motive to pin David to the wall. Now, lest we blame this harmful spirit from God, we've got to remember this. The point is not the influence of the harmful spirit, but the intent of the human heart. I'll say that again. The point is not the influence of the harmful spirit, but the intent of the human heart. You see, Saul's murderous intent did not come from this spirit from God but from his own sinful soul. After all, God cannot and does not tempt man to sin, right? That's in the book of James. And James continues that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Saul was drawn away by his own passions and anger and was enticed to sin in his own heart to murder David. That's why David's music in this case was unable to calm Saul down. We know that his playing was previously able to placate Saul's troubled soul and even effectively exorcise the spirit. But what his music could not do now and could never do was suppress the temptation to sin. Nothing the harmful spirit did could make Saul sin, and nothing David could do would ever keep Saul from sinning. It was Saul's own selfish displeasure within his heart that led directly to his sinful anger, to envy, to wrath, and to vengeance. Maybe you can identify with this. Displeasure and jealousy bear some pretty bad fruit. Now, you and I might not be murderers, but we know that Jesus said that the sin of anger is the same thing. I remember there was a period when I was at work. I'm actually a software developer by trade. And there was a time when I was really upset with my boss. I normally had a really great relationship with him. He was a really good guy, good to work with. And normally I also like to keep my head down and just do my work. So as long as I'm churning out what needs to be done, as long as my deliverables are up to spec, I could care less with the outcome, how it's used, what it does for the company. I'll just do my part and I'll happily move on to the next thing. But one time I overheard my boss talking to the CEO in his office. I actually sat pretty close to the door. And the CEO commended him for the results of my project. The performance, of course, of which, of course, I was unaware of, but it had apparently done well for the company. And my boss basically just took credit for the whole thing. Now, he didn't know I'd overheard, but it made me pretty mad because I didn't get the credit for it. If I didn't get the credit, I wouldn't get what might come along with that knowledge, right? Recognition, a raise for patting the company's bottom line, a better reputation in the eyes of the CEO. And I did let that drive a wedge into my relationship with my boss for a little while. I started doing things more begrudgingly, less efficiently. It affected my attitude, my work ethic, my output, my relationship. Because if my work was going to be to his credit and his benefit, then why should I work so hard? Now, this is in the workplace, but it can just be as true in the church. Brothers and sisters, there's no room for jealousy, envy, or pride when it comes to serving God. Serving God is not a competition, not a comparison game. Who is better than whom? Who takes credit for what? Who volunteers more? Who serves longer? Who's in children's ministry the most? Although we do appreciate that and it should be rewarded. It's not a game. Look what it results in. James 3, 14 through 16 says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Jealousy and selfishness are not spiritual fruit. It's the result of worldliness. It is unwise and unspiritual and leads only to evil and sin. It will taint the life and effectiveness of God's church. So what about us? What about you? Do you ever react in anger at who's doing God's work or how they're doing it? We might find ourselves harboring and nurturing hearts of jealousy or selfishness, even in ministry. For example, why did that guy get asked and not me? He's not nearly as blank as I am, right? That guy isn't a great singer. She's not very organized. He's not a great discussion leader. 
I'd do this or that differently. Brothers and sisters, it's a dangerous place to be when we cannot effectively co-labor with a brother in the work of a mission. I'll give you an example I've seen in other churches since I've served in the front and the back of nearly every church I've been in. Sometimes people let the perceived errors of the worship team or the tech team affect their ability to actually worship God when they sing. The slide guy messed up. The music was hokey. The sound was bad. There were disruptive kids in the aisle. Look, these things might be true, but if you spend your whole musical singing time being angry at your brother, you got it all wrong. Romans 14, 10 to 13 says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Romans 14 isn't about PowerPoint, but it is about looking down on others who are doing their best to honor God according to their convictions. But you might have a different standard. And God condemns us when we judge in this way. Because the end of the story is, to that brother, it's not sin. To you, it is. Your judging is sin because you are failing to walk in love. You see, our displeasure with the way God is doing things ultimately reveals our own pride, our own anger, our own selfish reaction. How can anyone say to God, my way is better? The sobering reality is that if we live in this way, we will find ourselves in opposition to God. And scarier yet, we will find God in opposition to us. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. An attitude of displeasure is nothing less than proud defiance against the holy God that will only lead to sin and never win. And believe it or not, it can get worse. The third and final point, the third reaction to David is distress. Distress. And we see this again with Saul, now having failed to eliminate David, is increasingly fearful. And where Jonathan was ready to relinquish his kingdom, Saul was desperate to cling to his. And that is what's so scary to him. His desperation is clearly growing. In fact, verse 12 starts saying that Saul was afraid of David. And by verse 29, Saul was even more afraid of David. Something is going to happen in this passage that will only increase his distress when he realizes the vanity of his actions. There's no peace for the one who opposes God. So starting in verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Saul's fear was because God was clearly with David, both in the miraculous defeat of Goliath and also the miraculous escape from Saul's spear. God is with him. And this hand of God was previously with Saul, but it now has left him and stands against him and is with his enemy, David. So Saul doesn't want him around anymore. He says, get this guy out of here, and he makes him the commander of the army, or in the army, excuse me. But what happens there? God is still with David. And he makes David extremely successful. And in verse 15, what is Saul's response? Fearful awe. He gets even more scared and amazed. He's incredulous at what is happening. And then verse 16 drives home the problem for Saul. 
It's that everyone loves David. All Israel and Judah, all the people love David. And it's because he's doing something that Saul has failed to do, which is lead the people. You see in verses 13 and 16 where it says David went out and came in before the people. It didn't mean that he was coming and going there watching him. It is meant to portray the image of a shepherd. It's meant to show his military leadership. Back in Numbers 27, 16 through 17, when speaking of Joshua, Moses says, Let the Lord appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, so that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that have no shepherd. Don't miss that. The military leadership of Joshua is shepherding imagery. Then in 2 Samuel 5, verses 1 to 2, when David is crowned king, all of Israel comes before him and testifies, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be the shepherd of my people. The leading out and bringing in is shepherding imagery. And isn't that just perfect? David was a shepherd. Sometimes we get caught up in David's story from the last chapter, the one about the bear and the lion. And we think, isn't that great that God made David a shepherd so that he could defeat Goliath? Well, the fact is God made David a shepherd so that he could lead the whole nation of Israel. And he was loved by all his sheep who knew him and trusted him and followed him. And I don't think we've mentioned yet in our study what the name David means. You know what David means? It means beloved. Beloved. And the love for him is never more clearly seen than in this chapter. Everyone loves David, and it strikes fear in Saul's heart. Because Jonathan, his son, loves David. All his people, Israel and Judah, love David. And we'll see in the next passage that his daughter, Michal, loves David too. Everyone loves David, and so Saul despairs for the kingdom. You see, the thing about fear is that fear usually is about self-preservation. If we're afraid of something... If it's snakes or heights or failure, it's usually because that thing can bring us harm, damage to our bodies, to our lives, or to our reputations. So fear evokes self-preservation, right? That's how horror movies work. The characters aren't just afraid because something was super ugly or super loud. They're afraid for their very lives. They think they're going to die, and they'll do whatever it takes to get out alive. You see, it's not just anger that makes someone murderous. Fear can also make someone murderous. You're scared of a spider, so you want to kill it. If it threatens my well-being, I need to exterminate it. And so Saul actually continues his murderous rampage, not out of rash anger this time, but out of self-preserving fear. So he makes a new plan of attack, right? He's tried and failed twice by spear, so now he will try twice by spouse, right? If not death by weapon, then death by wife. And know if you're a husband out there and you're nodding, it's not marriage that will kill him, okay? It's not that a wife will destroy his will to live. Here's his plan in verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. Saul's motivation isn't just making right on the reward of a wife for the person who defeats Goliath. He deceitfully adds to it a price, a condition. He wants to obligate David to ongoing military service so that the Philistines could do his dirty work and off David for him. 
But David responds unexpectedly. He says, humbly, who am I? He doesn't understand how a nobody, the youngest son in a family of nobodies, one who was virtually forgotten as an afterthought by his father, a rural shepherd boy, how could he become the king's son-in-law? And so at David's response, Merab is given to another man. But then Saul learns something about his younger daughter that turns into an ace up his sleeve. Verse 20. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private, and say, behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing? to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Saul has another chance here at David. This time it looked a little more promising because there's love involved. This time Saul is going to use love to his advantage because that's what makes Michal more effective bait for David. So Saul sends his servants to him with a deceitful message. Oh, the king delights in you so much. Everybody loves you. He loves you as much as everybody else. Why don't you marry into the family? But David's response is still, I can't do it. Don't you guys get it? Why don't you think it's a big deal? Look at me. I'm a poor man. I have no reputation. Now, we know he actually has a reputation, right? He killed Goliath. He has a hit song written about him. What he actually says is, I am lightly esteemed. I'm a man of no esteem. No honor. I am vile, despised, or base. That's what the word means. What he's saying is, I'm just a commoner. It's like Cinderella, right? You all know the fairy tale. Cinderella was also lightly esteemed. She was a commoner, a servant in her own household. And even though through magical powers she could be presented at the ball in a stunningly dressed, uh, in a stunning gown with a lavish crystal carriage with majestic horses and gallant footmen, but in her heart of hearts she knows the reality is she's just a commoner. She'll be that way again at midnight. And in the same way, David might now be clothed in Jonathan's regalia, but in his own heart, he's still just a commoner. He can't afford the price to marry a princess. But to Saul, it's an easy solution. He simply needs to renegotiate the bride price into something more acceptable for David. So verse 25. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Saul lowers the bride price to something that is more acceptable, even pleasing, the passage says, to David. And he sets the price in the weirdest currency ever, 100 foreskins. Just to be clear, that's not your usual monetary instrument in ancient Israel. Okay, so here's the thing about foreskins. That's a sentence you don't expect to hear. If you want to know more about foreskins, children, you can ask your parents about it at dinner tonight. Um, At Zoe, we firmly believe that parents should take a big part, the main part, in training and teaching your kids. And so we're giving you a chance 
right here. But actually, here's the thing about foreskins. First, Israelites don't have them, right? As a Hebrew male under the covenant of circumcision, no more foreskin. So what 100 foreskins means is 100 enemies. Moreover, foreskins means dead men. Because you don't need me to guarantee you, but you're not getting a foreskin from a Philistine alive. So as strange as it is, this is the currency of proof. Evidence of slain enemies of Israel. And it should be clear to us what Saul is getting at. He doesn't have to wait for David to marry Michal and then have him go fight his battles, get in the front lines, and maybe happen to die in a battle. He can just go die now. Send David to the wolves with this treacherous task, get him killed before even having to give my daughter away. What does David do? He goes, he comes back, ahead of the deadline, with double. 200 Philistine foreskins, and he gives them in full number to King Saul. And he gets to marry Michal. 100 was supposed to be enough, sufficient to get David killed. Him coming back with 200 just rubs it in Saul's face. And it's not because David is arrogant. It's not because he's an overachiever. The Bible tells us. It's so that in verse 28, Saul would see and know that the Lord was with David. If he didn't know before, God proves himself again. And this distresses Saul in two new ways. First, whenever Saul looked upon that sack of bloody foreskins, that gruesome sight was actually proof to him of only one thing, the clear and undeniable power of God in his presence with David. Second, whenever he looked at his own daughter, what he saw struck great fear in his heart. He saw the closeness of David to his royal family. He saw the proximity that David had to the reign and to the throne, his nearness to the kingdom itself. After all, marriage to Michal now makes David a legitimate successor to the throne. Jonathan had only symbolically bestowed upon David the rights to the kingdom, but Michal seals the deal. Saul's worst enemy is now his son's best friend and his daughter's husband. So Saul has one response, verse 29, he was even more afraid of David. The chapter ends, then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. You hear the contrast there? David's name, previously of little or no esteem, is now highly esteemed, and that's because God's favor is clearly with David. The malice of Saul is no match for the favor of God. Though Saul's distress has led him to continue his murderous rampage in brand new forms, it only leads him to more fear, more grief, more distress. And this is true for all of us. Anyone who continues in a pattern of railing against God and defying his will is on the path to destruction. The problem is what we said is that fear leads to self-preservation. But in the face of God, there's no such thing as self-preservation. Are you kidding me? When we are against God and God is against us, who can stand before him? Who can counter his will? Look, if you want to stand against God's way, you're going to get bowled over. God's way will win. Failure to submit to him will only multiply our distresses. And yet so often we find ourselves wanting to take matters into our own hands, wanting to live by our own power, to trust in our own strength, to control our own destinies, to be our own masters. Look, if you're searching for meaning, identity, purpose, joy, 
fulfillment in building your own kingdom, in defending your own kingdom, in clinging to your own kingdom, to your desires and hopes, then God's warning for you today is that that road, that search will lead to nowhere. The larger our castles, the harder they will fall. But Jesus says to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And this is the whole point. If you hear one thing, hear this today. This is what matters for us. These three reactions could well describe our responses to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the good shepherd who has come to find his lost sheep and lead us to salvation. Like Saul's first response, we can be displeased with Jesus. We might bristle at his teaching. We might refuse to admit that we are sinners deserving death. How could he call us that? We might get offended, at, get offended at his teachings that the world deems as bigoted. We might take issue at the whole idea of loving our enemies or turning the other cheek. We might dislike how he claims to be the only way to God, that there's no other way apart from him. And if we continue down that path, then we will only be distressed as Saul was. Isn't the next response? Because apart from Jesus, all of life and ambition and achievement is meaningless. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. Apart from God, there is no purpose or meaning in any of the pleasures of this world. And ultimately, distress will turn to despair. Because one day when Christ returns, and when every eye will see him and every knee will bow down to him, those who have failed to follow Jesus will despair. And I pray that there are none of you in this room. That if you're not following Christ now, that you would consider these things. Because you will despair in that day, not because you just realize you were wrong about him, but also because when he comes, he comes in judgment. He comes to reward the faithful, but condemn the wicked. He comes to have his way, the way of righteousness. And the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And so the right response to Jesus is our first point. The response of devotion. Full surrender and submission to Jesus Christ. The Savior who came to take away our sins. When he died on the cross, the death that we deserved, and when he rose from the grave on the third day, now he reigns in full authority over all things, and he rightly demands and deserves our submission to him. He deserves our lives of sacrifice and giving and obedience and worshiping him as our Lord and our master. Jesus might be calling you to faith today. Jesus wants a response of true devotion. Do you believe this? If you confess your sins, and if you have faith in him, believe in his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of those sins, and submit to him with your whole life that he would be your Lord and your God, you will be saved. We'll close here. Someone asked me at Zoe, uh, just last night actually, uh, about the, the story behind, for me and Steph, behind how we uh, chose to come here. Uh, how he uh, made the decision six years ago to be a part of the church plant. And when I was telling the story, I was reminded of one part that really reflects the point of today's message. You know, our decision was actually a pretty easy one. God had already put it on our hearts separately, and we were immediately on the same page when the opportunity presented itself. It was very clearly God. That's a story for another time. But the part of the decision that was harder for us was how our parents would react to the idea. After all, we thought we'd grow old and die in Southern California where we were living close to both of our parents. We were also the babies of both of our families and kind of sad for us to move away. All our sisters and, and brothers-in-laws and nephews were all also in the same area with our families. 
and be sad, and it would be difficult for us to be farther away. Especially at that point, we didn't know if we would have children later, which we have, and uh, it's harder for the grandparents to be farther away from the grandkids. And we even thought way into the future, uh, if there would be issues with our parents and their health, and we would need to care for them physically, what that would look like if we were still here. And so when talking to our parents, we knew it would be tough, and we knew it would be tough in particular for my parents, who are both pastor's kids themselves, and they have their own ideas and experiences and perspectives of church planting, what it should look like, things we should consider. And as expected, we did end up having some discussion and disagreement with them at first. But I'll never forget my mom's response after she and my dad had had some time to pray and process the news of our decision. She said to me, if God wants you to go to Texas, who am I to stand in the way? That was that. We never heard a negative word again. And I remember being profoundly affected by her response, more than she knew, because she immediately let everything go. And they've been behind us, supporting us ever since. And that needs to be my mentality, our mentality. If God is doing something, who are we to stand in the way? We might have our preferences. In fact, we all have our own opinions about just about everything. But none of that matters when God makes his move. When we see God working, we would be wise not to oppose him, but to get on board. So the encouragement today is look around you. What is God doing? Let's align ourselves with his work. Let's get on board. Let's get going for his glory. Will you pray with me? I want to provide a time right now for you to reflect, to respond to God's word today. If you, there's a few items I'd like to just guide our prayer through right now. First, a moment of confession. If you see in your own heart sins of displeasure or anger leading to distress over clinging to your own worldly kingdom, let's spend a, a moment to confess these things before God right now. Second, if you will, to make a commitment of devotion and sacrifice. Ask the Lord to show you practical ways to get on board with what he is doing in any sphere of life or within the walls of this church or faithfulness in evangelism. Pray for opportunities, for faithfulness, that you'd have the willingness to give God everything. Third, because I think it's uh, appropriate and necessary. Let's take some time to pray for the situation in Afghanistan. There's three areas I want to pray through here. We'll take them one at a time. First, let's ask the Lord for protection, uh, to preserve lives over there for our own troops, but also for Afghan civilians. Pray that lives would be protected and spared. Second, let's pray for those who are fleeing, for the refugees who are ending up 
displaced here and elsewhere in the world. Let's pray for God's protection and providence and for his mercy on their souls that they might be saved as well spiritually. Finally, and most importantly, let's pray for the missionaries abroad, for the local pastors, for the churches who have gone underground. Pray that the gospel would shine forth in Afghanistan through all of this. And perhaps you might hear this as controversial, but let's pray for the salvation of the Taliban. Because Jesus says to pray for our enemies. And we know that that's not too big for God. That they may repent like Nineveh, Syria, or even like the Apostle Paul, who wants persecuted Christians. God is mighty to save. Let's pray for the power of the gospel to go forth. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you with one Simple request now to conclude our time. We ask that you would show us what you are doing and give us a right response to it. Not to rail against you or preserve ourselves in our own righteousness, but to take part in what you are doing humbly and sacrificially. Show us each individually how we can serve you in this way how we can be truly devoted to you. I also pray, Lord, for those who have not committed their lives to you in faith. We pray that you would turn their hearts to you now, that you would grant them your grace, that they would respond, that you would grant them the faith and the regeneration of their hearts required to confess you as Lord, to confess their sins before you, and to receive the forgiveness of their sins and reconciliation with you. We thank you that you are a God of all power and all goodness whom we can trust and love and obey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.